0: All right, we are recording. Good afternoon. This is Michael Mute with Going Global International Interviews. Today we are speaking with Tom Levesque, the Vice President in Charge of Nanofabrication Systems at NanoLink. And if you're interested in an edited transcript of this interview, you can usually find them at INTLAlliances and MidwestBusiness.com. So, Tom, people can go to NanoLink.net to learn more about NanoLink, but it always helps to hear a description and a quick example from the proverbial horse's mouth. So could you give us a a quick description and example of NanoInk's technology?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, NanoInk was formed to commercialize technology that came out of Northwestern University uh, back around 2002. And the technology is called Dip-Pen Nanolithography. I'm going to abbreviate that as DPN because it's a lot easier to say from here on out. But dip or DPN, uh, is a technique that uses a sharp tip, something very often found in an atomic force microscope. And we're talking about a tip with a radius of 20 nanometers. Again, nanometers being billionths of a meter. So this is a very fine technique. The sharp tip is used to transfer material from the tip to the surface. Very analogous to writing with a quill pen, only on a much, much smaller scale. So this is technology that has been developed over the last nearly 10 years now, and it allows people to create structures with a variety of materials. What we use as ink can be anything from a biomolecule to a polymer to uh, sol-gel mixtures to DNA to almost anything you can think of. We can write with those materials on the appropriate substrates. So we're able to make features, nail-scale features, and we do this by uh, employing these atomic force microscope tips, and we do this with them in parallel. If you think of us doing this with one tip, it's very simple to describe, but you can also imagine how long it would take to make something of any volume with that technique. We use tips that are as many as 55,000 tips writing one pattern at one time. So this allows us a tremendous amount of scalability of this very fine process.
0: And what's an example of commercial application of one of your products? or whatever?
1: Well, I wish I could give you many commercial applications, but we're still in, in development on lots of these. I will say that it is possible for researchers at this point to manufacture substrates that are designed with different proteins on them at a very small scale that allows them to use them for cell culture media, and the cells interact with these proteins or surface chemicals, and they do things. They either differentiate and become something if they're stem cells, or they, uh, you can create scaffolds and t- do tissue engineering Uh, Or you could make protein arrays where the proteins themselves are used for screening other chemicals to see what potential new drugs or or other active agents will bind to certain proteins. Remember that when we're working in the nanospace with structures that are this small, and we're talking about, you know, single molecules that are interacting with single molecules, uh, the behavior of those is... I don't want to say the rules go off the window. You know, some people say that when you do things in nanoscale, the rules are different. Well, the rules really aren't different, but the equations calculate differently when you're at that scale. So surface-to-volume, if you think of, you know, the number of atoms of a particular uh, material that are on the outside of a particle, if the particle is a basketball, it's the, the surface-to-volume ratio is a great deal different if the particle is only... Uh, only a few hundred molecules to begin with. So maybe every molecule touches the outside. There is no inside of a particle that small.
0: So in other words, relationships that in the physical space we're familiar with may be linear. They may be exponential at mm-hmm. the or in the other direction. In the other
1: direction. Again, think of smaller and smaller and smaller. So, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Now, for a relatively small and young company, it seems like Nano Inc. has done a good job of generating uh, an international network. So let's talk a little bit about your global marketing channel. Um, You have a number of international distributors mentioned on your website. Mm -hmm. What's the role of distributor in your marketing and sales channel? Well, we have,
1: you know, I guess distributors are like people. They come in all different flavors as well. And around the world doing business in different countries is, the mores, the the rules, et cetera, are different. But I would have to say, we expect our distributors to be able to provide frontline service for our equipment and to provide technical sales expertise in the selling of
0: that equipment.
1: Um, They may not be distributors in the true sense of a distributor. When you think of an automotive parts distributor who has on the shelf many, many, many different components and uh, stocks uh, material and guarantees orders to the company, uh, our distributors are probably more like sales agents in the way that they really behave, uh, although the distributor we have in Europe, at Lot LOT, uh, which is now part of Quantum Design in Europe, um, actually does provide more distributor-like functions for us. They do all their own installations. They do most of their own service work, at least on the front line. Um, a smaller distributor for us like, like we have in, in Korea, the Pupitech, um, doesn't have that kind of uh, deep, deeper pockets. They're a small company. They are very focused in our niche, though. If you, you, there are not very many atomic force microscope events in Korea that happen that Pukotec doesn't know about. You know, small com- small country, small market. They're very, very close to it, um, but the volume that they do wouldn't, wouldn't really let us call them a true distributor. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Well, I guess getting back to your product, I mm-hmm. mentioned that your distributors don't stock your equipment per se. But when we're talking about nanolink and VPNs and so on, it sounds like the products that you're referring to are uh, microscopes and, and other hardware kinds of things and not necessarily, um, you know, throughput or, or supply kinds of things. When I think about the general world, sense, when I think of nanolink. Am I thinking of
1: that correctly? Yeah, I, I'll expand on that a little bit in that um, we, we, do, we have about 60 customers worldwide. So we're not, you know, there's not thousands of nanowink customers. Many of them are used by multi-user facilities. So there's probably maybe 250 customers that we actually have that use, them, use our equipment today. Um, and they, there are some consumables that, that they do use. So the, the, the analogy of, you know, sewing machines and needles and thread kind of comes to mind. And, that, you know, we sell one big system, and we sell a substantial amount of ongoing consumables, these tips that I talked about, uh, the, the the other MEMS-based uh, microelectromechanical devices that are made. All of the things we use are really small, so you can't exactly just stick your finger in and, and tweak something or grab a wrench and tighten it. Everything we work with is, is made of real small parts that are made in silicon, technology like in semiconductor world so um, there, there is an aftermarket um, business for providing the ongoing consumables to our customers I wish I could say we make a business selling ink but the volume of the ink is so small if you sold somebody a, a pint of ink it would last a hundred lifetimes you know so we can't very well make business out of selling just generic chemicals and inks
0: mm-hmm. okay well now, then let's talk about how your relationships developed with your international distributors. You mentioned lot Oreo in Mm -hmm. Europe. How did they find you or you find them?
1: We conducted a search of people that were selling uh, in the analytical instrument and in the the nanotechnology supply space, if I can go there. So these people were already in a market uh, associated with either atomic force microscopy or electron microscopy, uh, lasers, uh, the the kind of high-tech instrumentation, that people think of when they think of the nanotechnology as well as the uh, high-level research facilities. We we did a survey uh, at the very beginning of the company when we looked around to see who we could uh, approach about these. Uh, Approached in Europe, we approached three or four different companies that did this and uh, chose Lot. So we've been with Lot pretty much from the beginning for our European distributor. And it has expanded. They've they've filled the role. Uh, They have... Uh, gone from just providing offices in in uh, the major countries of uh, Germany, France, uh, the UK, to now having offices in probably over thirty countries in Europe and Eastern Europe, and now we're we're getting orders from Romania and Russia and places where we didn't used to do much business. So, okay.
0: so in other words, lat coverage throughout all of Europe.
1: Lat coverage through Eastern Europe and Europe today. Yeah. Okay.
0: And I also saw that recently uh, you signed up with Quantum Design for China and India. We've How did that come about? Well, we
1: did, and that actually came about because we were already affiliated with with Lot. Quantum Design, about a year and a half ago, purchased Lot, and so we had been through a couple of different distributors in India and in China, and hadn't found a tremendous uh, fit for us so far. And uh, because we were familiar with with L.O.T., we began to look pretty seriously at their new owner. Uh, Also, when Quantum purchased Lot, one of their plans was to go from being just a supplier of, because Quantum actually manufactures equipment as well as uh, providing distribution for other related equipment. And they have a fairly extensive network uh, of of distribution uh, in Asia. So this allowed us to unify uh, all of our, well, a large portion, portion of our distribution around the world under one um, contract and one umbrella.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, now, and I also saw, <clears throat> it looked like previously, Schmidt Scientific had handled China for you, and you mentioned you had some problems with some prior distributors in India and China. What kind of problems did you mm-hmm. run into?
1: China is a very complex market. Um, the fact that there is a Taiwan and a China and maybe even a Hong Kong to boot, which is somewhere in between in terms of uh, rules, regulations, and, and importation and uh, relationships. Um, we have been through in uh, Taiwan and China two, two distributors uh, prior to the quantum relationship. Uh, and uh, all, all distributors seem to have a very... Uh, rosy initial outlook, uh, and once they realize that the sales cycles for this type of equipment tend to be rather long and complex, and there's a lot of applications handholding, holding uh, the, the dew comes off the lily fairly quickly. So um, this time around, I think, again, we were a little more careful. We hoped that in the long run, Quantum is better equipped for the, for the long haul. Some of these other distributors were more interested in kind of turn in a, a fast uh, return for their for their efforts. And unfortunately for them, it doesn't really work very well that way.
0: And were contracts a problem? Because typically breaking agreements with distributors in foreign countries can be a sticky business.
1: Well, there's a fairly, I, I don't know if I call it lengthy, but uh, there, there, there's a, the exit clause on the contracts that when they're due to renew or... Or when they uh, terminate, uh, there's certainly some overlap there, uh, and but so we've been able to work through those. I haven't had very, I haven't had any animosity with any distributor as we've made a change. They've been positive, uh, positive experiences uh, as we've made the change.
0: And it also looks like in India. Specialized Instruments Marketing Company. Mm-hmm. Are they an earlier distributor? Actually, Specialized
1: Instruments Marketing is a division of Quantum Design, uh-huh. so so they are in fact Quantum today. The prior distributor distributor in India, which we had from the beginning, was a Spectronics Instruments, and you know they again they we sold uh, two systems in India o- over the four years or so that they were involved. So. It, In a way, it doesn't pay the distributor a whole lot if they're not very successful, and that sort of breeds lack of effort on their part. So it it becomes uh, self-fulfilling that they don't do much business, that they don't work very hard at it, and therefore they don't do much business. And, you know, India is a large market. We really... uh, I have a lot of inquiries for our equipment in in India, and uh, we'd like to do better, and I hope we will do better in the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, it
0: looks like... Hakuto handles you in Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, but Quantum Design also has offices in Japan as well.
1: Yes, and Quantum would like to have our Japanese business right now. They've been fairly uh, upfront about that. Um, but we have a two-year plus relationship with Hakuto, and again, this uh, takes a while to train and 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 build up a customer base. And so uh, we're still working with Hakuto. Uh, whether it lasts forever, you know, I can't say, but. Uh, the simple fact that Hakudo had offices uh, that could service us in Singapore at the time was important. Uh, and uh, uh, Malaysia, Vietnam, uh, maybe less so, but at least we have some coverage there now that we don't have should we, should we exit the Hakudo relationship. So.
0: Uh, and you mentioned Korea already with Kudo Tech, but it also looks like Quantum Design is active there.
1: Another one where they, in the future, you know, they've expressed interest in it, but uh, I felt that in Korea, again, being a niche market for us, um, we were probably better off with somebody that knows all the players really well. Uh, and, you know, if quantum grows into a role like that for us in the future, that's, that, that's an opportunity too. Oh,
0: so it's interesting. So it sounds like the big guy, quantum, can comfortably coexist with some of the small specialists on a country-by-country basis.
1: Yes, I believe that's a very good uh, 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 description of, of, of the, the role that, that both of those players can have in this. Okay. Um, are
0: there any other potential channel conflicts that you need in- to resolve?
1: There are some channel conflicts, and it's interesting yeah. because there are times when distributors would like to have uh, products that could be competitive products. And we had a distributor uh, in, in one place who wanted to pick up, a product which we felt was competitive and we said you'll have to make a choice and uh, he chose the other product and we, we replaced it. But uh, there aren't too many of those. There are places where people uh, who sell our equipment also sell atomic force microscopes. And while we're not competitive per se with the atomic force microscope, um, it is we have an AFM in our equipment which which is built into the system. So there are times when one distributor may sell one atomic force microscope and want to sell our dip pen nanolithography system, and the two microscopes involved might not be fully compatible. So, we have had some issues there where where we've had conflicts, but we've been able to resolve those by having different sales forces at that distributor. You know, specialization, again, somebody specifically selling a nanotechnology product and somebody selling a more generic uh, AFM. So... There have been ways around
0: And it also looks like in the U.S. you have primarily direct sales model. We do. And complemented by essentially an indirect sales model internationally. But working through distributors and other representatives and so on, there are control issues. You know, as you mentioned already, sometimes they don't pay as much attention as you'd like them to and so on. Do you imagine in the future at any time changing your international channel structure?
1: I think it's possibly true that we will grow. Um, some of our new products uh, have very large market potential upsides on them. Uh, we're, we're providing products right now that are associated with stem cells. If the, you know that stem cells is a very hot topic, so uh, if we're successful in some of the things that we're doing, we very easily could be large enough to justify more direct involvement in certain places around the globe. And those are the kind of places where you've seen a lot of research in stem cells. Singapore comes, comes to mind. The Singapore government made tremendous investment in that side. Of, uh, Europe also comes to mind, you know, and, and we are increasing our efforts in Europe alongside our distributor today. We're putting more direct nanolink people into Europe work with our distributor, not trying to essentially replace a distributor, but to to strengthen a distributor. I know that we are not in a position as a company to to live without those 30 offices and to go direct and start trying to build that organization takes an awful lot of uh, revenue to do that. So uh, in the meantime, uh, we're finding that we can improve our distributors' capabilities with some more nano support, and uh, we're, we're making that investment.
0: So in other words, you're hiring people in Europe to support your Absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting. That's cool. Um, and just one other thing on your international arrangements. Um, it looks like you have some licensing agreements hmm. with the University of Liverpool and Strathclyde.
1: Strathclyde is in Glasgow, Scotland, mm-hmm. uh, and Liverpool. Both of those are associated with some of our stem cell work. In fact, we did a press release just a couple of weeks ago announcing the license agreements that we've taken with uh, um, Liverpool, primarily, although Strathcite is involved, there's two researches, one in each location. This grew out of work that was done at our, one of our current customers, where they used our equipment to uh, uh, create substrates that were able to manipulate, manipulate stem cell growth. And uh, we saw the, the value in this, and we, we entered into an agreement where we support research at both of those facilities, and have licensed the IP that they have filed. We have filed on that as well in the United States. And uh, as as this develops, there is a a royalty that will be paid back to the universities on our sales of these products. Uh I mean, is
0: that something that you can replicate in other places? Oh, absolutely.
1: We, We have similar licenses around in the United States as well, several universities. Uh, I believe we have six different uh, uh, universities where we have uh, licenses of uh, in-licensing technology from them and pay royalties back to those universities.
0: And I gotta believe there would be a lot of opportunities in a lot of other places in Europe, you know, Asia, Singapore, as you mentioned as well.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. But the difficulty is is spotting those, and and you know, being all around the world, knowing what people are doing with the equipment. And again, we're we're only focusing on equipment that is. Uh, related to or enabled by dip pen analithography We're not going out looking for opportunities to license technology to grow stem themselves with other uh, technology than, than what we feel is primarily our focus.
0: But, I mean, things they're doing in the U.K., though, i got to believe they're doing in other places throughout the world as well. So. They are. And I guess, dovetailing that a little bit, just an organizational issues. And taking a look at your advisory board, it looks like it's primarily Chicago-based. But there is one gentleman, Dr. Duncan Graham, who is from New York, he is classified, who is a member of your scientific advisory board.
1: And just joined us.
0: There, okay. Are there plans to expand that scientific advisory board to include more people outside of Chicago?
1: I think, yes. Again, going back, we're, we're a reasonably young company. We've been around since 2002, Our scientific advisory board was initially focused on uh, where the technology came from. Uh, Up until last year, we had two other people on our advisory board, uh, which we changed. We had one of them from Georgia Tech, who served with us for about four years. We had one from Seoul, Korea, Seoul National University in Korea. But he was originally from Northwestern, so, again, the, the, if you look at the genesis of the technology, it came very heavily out of Northwestern, and these, these, the ripples move out across the world, and some of these people stay with us for a while and then move on to do other things. We try and keep our advisory board focused on the, the leading edge of our technology, so, People that are doing new things, and, again, it's not an accident that Duncan Graham is on our board. He was involved in a lot of this work that led to the, to the license agreement and the formation of two business units uh, here at at Nanolink. In the last year, we formed a business unit to work with the stem cell opportunities, and we formed a business unit to work with the spectroscopy opportunities, um, both of which Duncan was involved in. Uh, yeah, and
0: I, mean, I don't mean to jump out of soapbox, but part of the reason I asked, is I think there are a lot of American companies and organizations who have a lot more international interest from customers, suppliers, partners, and so on, and their interests really aren't represented on the board. And so I just think it's a lot better for American companies to consider adding those international constituents at the board level because, I think mean, they're really underrepresented these
1: days. Uh, I, I agree. And, and we are always looking for new, bright scientists who are doing work that's uh, – core to our technology and uh, we, we are. as I said our board is a kind of dynamic group of people um, which will continue to grow and, and people will come and people will go. Sure.
0: Now, to move into a couple specific issues, I think it's safe to say that you're a Chicago success story to what you attribute Nanolink's international success.
1: <laughs> That's not one I really, I guess I thought about a lot. Um, our international success, again, I think we, we have some very unique new enabling technologies. We allow people to do some things with our equipment that they can do almost with no other way. And the other thing is, is that it allows people to make structures, these nanostructures, which are used in chemistry or polymers or biology or physics. Again, everybody wants to work with these small structures. And our equipment allows people to do this without having a complete fab or, you know, a billion dollars' worth of equipment on a mini football field size footprint. Um, Our equipment is desktop equipment. So people can purchase our equipment for the several hundreds of thousands, which may sound like a lot compared to a new automobile, but it sounds like a very little compared to, what you would have to invest for uh, electron beam lithography or or even nano imprint lithography the tools that are, you know, in the many, many hundreds to many millions of dollar range. Um, So there's a demand. And and the the fact that there's a demand for the technology and the capability, the demand is pretty universal. I mean, our customers are split almost 50-50 between North America and the rest of the world. So... Uh, we, we have a presence. You know, anybody that wants to work in leading-edge technology looks at us now and says uh, dip pen lithography is, is an alternative. It's not, it's not the mainstream lithography. We're, you know, that's still dominated by the, the research one university that has clean rooms with, with many different types of equipment in it and, and many, many millions of dollars compared to, you know, we're kind of the, the niche alternative to that, for someone who has a smaller laboratory, uh, needs immediate access to these kind of small structures, um, and
0: we pick their budget. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but I guess getting back to your international success, I mean, I guess it would seem to me your relationship with Lot-Oreal is key. You know, the fact that Quantum Design has, has purchased lot Oreo. because without them, I think it would be difficult for you to have accomplished nearly as much as
1: you have. I think it's safe to say that having good distributors in some places has helped us. Um, and again, I think that ultimately it's the customer's uh, demand and need that's driven us to those locations. And so where the investment dollars in nanotechnology have been spent, we have a higher footprint visibility in those places. And then we have better distributors there, which is the chicken and which is the egg, I'm not sure.
0: Well, and I guess just to take it even a step further, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've got to believe in your business there's a huge educational component, training component, both of which are very culturally dependent. In other words, you know, to do these kinds of things on your own without prior experience, contacts, and so on would be very difficult. So in that regard, it sounds like your partners are probably even more important as well. From an understanding perspective, as well as being able to educate their customers in those kinds
1: of things. Absolutely. Any of the training, even if we go on-site and provide training, our distributors are with us providing that interface to help us communicate with the customer. And it's not just, when I say communicate, I don't just mean English uh, and language. I mean communicate in terms of uh, understanding the, the, the customer's true needs and, and uh, whether it's time for tea right now or some other break that we're not quite so used to in the United States. We get a lot of uh, um, cultural education from our distributors.
0: How so? Can you give an example of it?
1: We did an installation in India in a, in a very remote location, a government facility. And uh, we, we had a great deal of difficulty uh, trying to um, interface with the customer. When at different times of day, they just simply were not going to work for a while because it was time to... Uh, either have a meal or, or have tea or just plain not be working for a while. And uh, it was it was a little frustrating for our two U.S. young service guys who were in there to get a job done and get out. And we kind of uh, needed to have somebody there to keep telling us, that no, no. Um, <laughs> this is the way it was done. And uh, keep kind of pulling the reins back on our guys.
0: I mean, it's interesting because when I think about international beverages, I think tea – is probably the reigning champion. If you were to mm-hmm. look at work hours, cost on account of tea, you know, <laughs> the world is probably losing lots and lots of man hours because of tea. There are some, some countries
1: where we're losing yes, you know, many 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 man hours. And if you yeah. have spent
0: time in Poland and Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. you know maybe vodka competes with it in you know, <laughs> parts of the world. But still, yeah. It's still kind of mind-boggling. Um, now, how would you say that your customer and competitor is differ outside of the United
1: States? Um, well, let me, I'll answer those separately because I think that uh, there are two, there really are two questions there. Um, the customer base is probably driven more by, you know, the nanotechnology space. So there's probably not as much difference in the customer base. I mean, people are still trying to solve these uh, questions of how matter interacts on the, on the nanoscale. That's really the driver for our customers. And that the amount of money that's available or the length of time it takes to buy it, those things may vary country to country, but the, but the science that they're trying to do is probably fairly similar. Uh, competitors, uh, there are regional competitors. That's an interesting thing. Now, when I say competitors, uh, if somebody chooses to do dip pen nanolithography, they're going to do it with NanoLink because of our patents and our protection on that. And We'll probably come back to that in a bit if you want. But um, there, are, there are competitive technologies. And there are strengths to where those competitive technologies uh, emanate from. For example, there is a technology called uh, an NSOM. NSOM. It's a, a near-field scanning optical microscope. Uh, one of the biggest countries that makes that, one of the biggest companies is based in Israel, and they do very well there, and we don't <laughs> because they're able to take more of the potential research dollars and convince people it's better spent in that kind of a technology than ours. Um, I, could, I could go around the world and come up with some other smaller niches again, but uh, places where people are strong. I'll also state that in China today there are half a dozen, uh, well, more than that, there's probably around 15 AFM companies there, small people who make atomic force microscopes who you don't see anywhere else in the world, That collectively they nibble and nibble a lot of the market up before the major players who you all know the names of uh, even get involved. And they do it at very, very low prices.
0: Well, bringing up China, I guess, is kind of opportunistic. Um, You mentioned patents, and Mm -hmm. my understanding is you have 140 worldwide patents. To me, that sounds, number one, kind of expensive. Mm -hmm. Number two, pretty unwieldy and difficult to defend. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you manage that?
1: Well, we haven't had to defend 140 at once. <laughs> I think yeah, no one would manage that. Um, we have been able to defend our patents uh, that we have so far, and 140 are not all granted. They're, they're some form of the process. So, um, you, you know, technically, I suppose we wouldn't have to defend 140 because they're not all they're not already viably granted patents. But um, we it is expensive. First of all, when you say expensive, it's one of our very large. Um, budget items every year. Um, we, our, our lawyers love us um, because, um, you know, we, we keep many of them uh, uh, employed and gainfully employed. And uh, and yet there's...
0: I'm curious, are you Chicago-based lawyer? Do you have lawyers in different places throughout the world mm-hmm. to enforce them in different places? Our
1: primary IT uh, lawyer is... Um, oh, gosh, isn't that terrible when you just forget the company... Foley, Foley, uh, Foley and Larner. okay? I, I could tell you Steve's name, but Foley and Larner, the is a little higher. Okay, Um And, and they have offices of, around uh, most major countries around the world. So when we have a question about Scottish law, you know, we have UK help on that. When we have a question about Japanese law, we have, we have their help on that. Uh, in addition to our IT lawyers, though, we also have uh, another law firm, we use Bar Shaw, locally. So we have Chicago... Uh, help for more routine legal and agreement issues Mm -hmm. where we use uh, the Foley people more for the intellectual property filings Mm -hmm. and uh, defense. Um,
0: And you mentioned China. Are there any other problems defending your IP in different places throughout the world? Um, I,
1: I can say we haven't had them, but we're certainly concerned that someday we probably would. Uh, and and I think it varies from which particular product and division of our company you're talking about. Um, Our anti-counterfeiting group would probably not sell their equipment in China. I'll put it that simply, right? Because it would be too easy for somebody to misappropriate. And once that happens once, the anti-counterfeiting methodology that we use would be severely impacted. So, um, in that case, you know, that would be a simple business decision to not pursue that marketplace. Um, For for the nanotechnology, nanofabrication side of the business, my side of the business, um, it's more a case of, we've sold the systems in both China and India, and um, it's a case of us being vigilant to see that our users are appropriately using our equipment and that it's not being reverse engineered. And at this point, I think it maybe that we're small enough that we're, you know, it, it's, it might not be worth their while to try and reverse engineer our products. Um, but in the future, in some of these areas of strong growth, um, I think it's going to be more of a, of a case for us to be on guard.
0: Well, I mean, it's interesting because it also sounds like your place in the marketplace, you know, you're a lower cost alternative to a lot more expensive processes. And so in some ways, there's more incentive to pirate the more expensive right. processes as opposed to the less expensive processes. So in a way, that works to your advantage. Yeah.
1: Right. yeah, in order to, if you look at all of the effort, even, even to just reverse engineer our product, to look at all the effort that would go into it. And uh, how you would try and capitalize on that? It, to yeah. me, I think that there are greener pastures for crooks. You can make a faster buck someplace else. Yeah. And I you guess know, you first
0: engineering <laughs> nanotechnology. How small can you get?
1: Yeah, Rocky. Right.
0: Um, okay. well, now, and you mentioned stem cells earlier, mm-hmm. and you mentioned stem cells are a hot topic. Nanotechnology, in some ways, is newsworthy and not necessarily in a good way. In other words. Do you run into opposition in different mm-hmm. places throughout the world because people are concerned about negative effects of nanotechnology and, and um, negative perceptions of stem cell research and so on? And how do you address those
1: concerns? Well, uh, there's two questions in there. Again, I'm going I'm to answer the stem cells first because I think it's an easier question to answer, mm-hmm. and that is, um, all of our work with stem cells is—it doesn't really matter whether we work with embryonic stem cells or, or human adult stem cells. And in fact, we do—we do not work with embryonic stem cells. But our—but our technology is neutral to what you do with the stem cells. Mm-hmm. Our choice has been to only work with human adult stem cells, and that we bypass the ethical issues of embryos being destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of uh, around the world. Um, and the perception of the negative perceptions of nanotechnology, I do find that when we when we talk to the more general population, that we have to do some education about the sensationalism of some of the stories of, of uh, you know whether you're talking about gray goo from Crichton or swarm or or some of the crazy well, I shouldn't say crazy but some of the more uh, sensationalist uh, interpretations of what nanotechnology how it could go wrong. So
0: when you say, Craig, are referring to the uh, yeah, yeah, Yes, yes, so Michael Craig. Craig. Yes,
1: I'm so sorry. sorry. Yeah. Uh, an author that would use uh, the more um, uh, publicly um, inflated kind of, you know, take over the world and A bad things. Sensationalist, yeah. there's the word. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, fundamentally, I think if people who are associated with nanotechnology, the... the, the, the more educated and the more scientifically oriented, um, realize that it's not completely without any potential danger. But, but nanoparticles have been around forever. We are just now learning what, how to manipulate them. Uh, it's the reason that stained glass in some of the old cathedrals has the colors it has is because they added the nanoparticles to it. They just didn't know they were doing it at the time. Um, so, nowadays, now that we've, and, and, and carbon nanotubes are virtually soot, <laughs> so soot's been around for a long time. So, there are many of these things the bodies have been exposed to them. That's not to say people should have carte blanche and should mix new technologies into um, foods and cosmetics that are, that are, you know, in high concentrations that are associated with humans or animals. Uh, I do think there needs to be some oversight. But I also think that uh, the the runaway stories of of the the kind of doom and gloom that come out of this are much more for uh, for their story value and and sensationalist value than they have. But we do a lot of education.
0: Well, yeah, (laughs) we have to, no doubt about it. Moving on to some specific international marketing questions. Um, Americans are the world's biggest brand evangelists and I know that you have a relatively new product, NanoGuardian. You mentioned that you probably won't be bringing that out in China. How will you be marketing Nano Guardian internationally?
1: Well, you really should be talking to the division that does the NanoGuardian thing, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you kind of a summary, uh, but if you, if you want to go into more depth with that, you can talk to those guys too. Um, at this point in time, they, they have been marketing their products as, as very much focused on, you know, using nanotechnology to protect items of high value. And and it, it, it's a case where um, by disclosing only a little, and they have to be very careful what they can disclose, because if you simply go out and espouse your technology and how you do things, you, you again, announce to people the best way to circumvent it. And so they are... Uh, they they provide information to people about the value of what they can do and and the the model of how they would do it, but without detail. So it's an interesting sales approach because, you know, you're really selling a mysterious solution to a a problem without giving too much away in uh, how it's done. And you're trying to sell it to some very analytical people who want to know everything about how it's done. So uh, it's a bit of a challenge for them. Um, they, do, they do have a fairly small team, and they do all work from here. There are not distribution channels set up yet. A lot of their work is done with pharmaceuticals at this point, and the pharmaceutical companies are almost all um, multinationals to begin with. So working with uh, a Pfizer here means you're already working with Pfizer in the U.K. just as much. So it's a very centralized, uh, long-term uh, approach to, to the sale of, of that technology.
0: And I, I guess my understanding was that this is to protect brands, per se. But you expanded that to even things of value, mm. what's the difference there?
1: Um, we've looked at applications that go so far as currency. Mm-hmm. We've looked at uh, any counterfeiting applications of uh, when I say so items, you know, items. And, and yes. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It, it, if anything's worth something, people will steal it. It's amazing to me; they'll just mm-hmm. steal it. So we've looked at expensive watches, we've looked at airplane parts, we've looked at medical devices. Um, anything that people will try and you know cut the cost, lower the cost, mm-hmm.
0: so Circumstances. the
1: not just branded things. Just okay. Aircraft aircraft parts are. Uh, or actually, oh, very often, I mean, there's a great deal of counterfeiting on parts that go into aircraft. And
0: but, I mean, it also sounds like you know, probably a lot of products more created in the developed world, um, you know, not OEM kinds of things. Um, so, you know, that determines where some of your markets are, too. Like
1: yeah, it, it, it does. Uh, it's probably even more determined by... The, the value of the part and the, the, um, the, the rate of its usage and its unit cost. Mm-hmm. When you think of taking the pill every day, and the pill could be worth a, a couple of dollars, and, you know, when you can, when you can protect it for a penny, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's a good business plan. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you, when you think of a Rolex watch and you want to protect it, people don't buy new Rolex watches every every year, so you can afford to maybe spend a little more to protect it per unit. Um, but but the, the pressure to steal it might might be you know, the counterfeit it might be higher at the same time. So it's it's everyone's different, I
0: guess. Okay. Um, and again, the international marketing. It didn't look like you're giving it any international trade show. Do you
1: distributors do that for you on a country country basis? Yes. It, 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 our, our trade show effort that comes direct from Nanolink is very heavily focused in the U.S., in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that's because we staff all those shows by ourselves. Internationally, our distributors do attend trade shows. We're, we're probably not as – they should be on our website as well. They're probably not. They would be found on our distributors' websites, what trade shows that they would participate in. Um, and we participate with them. We assist. Uh, It may be an assist of presenting technical papers. It may be an assist of uh, occasionally shipping equipment to them, special for a show, or attending the show with our staff as well to to provide support. So we do all of those things.
0: And I saw that Nanolink was named to World Trade Magazine's fabulous 50 last year. And you were in there with some heavy hitters. So i was just wondering, any (laughs) idea how you were able to swing that? Because from a public relations standpoint, I mean, that's, that's a home run for you.
1: Um, again, I think a lot of the, the nanoing technology, probably especially the Nano Guardian, uh, has, has been looked at as uh, truly innovative in ways to protect a supply chain or to uh, secure um, uh, large markets. I mean, these, these, these anti markets for drugs are billions and billions of dollars. So people are looking at that technology as uh, as truly innovative and, and enabling. So uh, I think it, it, probably a lot of that grew out of the, uh, the efforts to publicize the fact that it is possible to do that. Um, and the public safety aspect of that probably weighed in there as well. I mean, it's not just the money. Uh, the number of people that are severely uh, hurt or killed every year by taking fake drugs or or uh, even diverted drugs um, is is substantial. Mm -hmm. That weighed in.
0: Well, and it also sounds like you're still in the infancy stages with the Nano Guardian and there's a lot of growth opportunities in the future.
1: Potential weighs heavy in that kind of a boat, I'm sure. Mm
0: -hmm. And the last company international question. It sounds like you have Europe and a lot of Asia covered, but it doesn't look like you have much in Latin America Australia, New Zealand, and, you know, in Africa, at least South Africa, has some opportunities. What do you see in the future for those areas? We actually
1: have several systems in Australia. We've sold them directly. Some, we don't have a distributor there. Okay. And I think that, that lends itself to the fact that Australia has spent probably a considerable amount of dollars in nanotechnology. Hmm. South America and Africa have spent very little money in, in development of nanotechnology to date. Uh, and, and consequently, we haven't had a driver to uh, to have a high presence there. Um, we constantly look at those, and I and I'm approached every at least once a month by somebody who'd like to be a distributor for us in those locations. And I and I and I engage and look, and uh, in several places, I have extended even some trials to people if they'd like to try and do some stuff. We would we would be interested. Um, but right now, you know, I guess it's a demand thing, really, because uh, I don't think that we, no matter how much of our effort today uh, in, in, in most of Africa and in the vast majority of, of, of South America, Central America, uh, we, we wouldn't see much business.
0: Mm-hmm. And I guess evaluating demand, do people find you through your website, follow up there, or are there other ways for people to find you and evaluate that?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of ways. Website, obviously. Um, you know, every, everybody's on the web nowadays, and, and the activity on our website amazes me. The number of people that actually come to our website, I'm very pleased with it. We've worked very hard over the last year, year and a half, to drive people to information-packed website make it worthy of people going to it. Um, but we also meet people. People come to international exhi- exhibitions and, and seek us out there. Um, The Pittsburgh conference that just happened in Chicago about three weeks ago is an international analytical instrumentation show. And I had of the, oh, roughly 100, you know, names I collected at that show in terms of sales fleet, et cetera, there was a good dozen of that in that thing that were coming to me specifically to see if we had representation in different parts of the world. So it's a substantial effort that, that growing distributors will make to seek out new products. And as you said before, we have a lot of visibility for our product. For a small company, we, there's a lot of press. There's a lot of information on the web. There's a, there's a lot of activity. So if somebody's looking for a new hot topic to, to pick up product lines and build a business around and it's associated with stem cells, you can imagine that there are a lot of people that have an interest in that. So.
0: And I guess a couple personal things I'm always curious about. It sounds like you're probably flying all over the world, meeting with distributors, (laughs) exhibiting at conferences, and and so on. I mean, have you studied international business, or how do you learn about the places you're going to when you're flying all over the world?
1: Uh, School of hard knocks. Uh, Did I study international business? No. I'm a biologist by training, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, 32 years uh, salesperson, both domestically and internationally, so most of what I've learned... About the business side, it has been through experience. Uh, I will say that most of my trips internationally, I do. Uh, I am accompanied by somebody on the ground there. Uh, that's not to say all the time. I, I've done some pioneering things in countries where I've gone in and used, uh, you know, U.S. State Department uh, agencies, uh, gold gold programs, things like that to help. Gold P, thank you. That's the one. It's been a while since I did that, but I but I've done that in a few countries where I've gone in uh, to look at potential distributors. cold, Mm-hmm. and started that way. And, there, you know, that was that was a help to, to have that kind of capability. But uh, no formal training.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, and you're not alone, right? Mean, no. Um, and I guess one last thing. I mean, with your products, they're obviously very technical, require a lot of education. Is there anything that changes as far as language or culture that impacts upon your business? Because being highly technical... I would think not, but on the other hand, you know, there are certain things that you have to provide in written form. They probably have to be translated. You know, where do language and culture impact the business here?
1: Well, I'm sure, I'm sure they do impact. You're right. By being technical, we get sort of a pass on a lot of that stuff. Uh, all of my contracts are in English. I have not had to uh, really do an awful lot of translations of our, our do- instrument documentation or our business documentation. Now, a large distributor like one in Japan may choose to, in fact, uh, make their material, make our materials available in their own language, and they have. Um, somewhat less so, Korea does it. Uh, a little bit even less so, China-Taiwan have done it.
0: Um, but I mean, in those instances, have you proof <laughs> to make sure that everything's correct, makes sense? Cause sometimes stuff does get lost in translation.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm sure that's true, but uh, for the most part, the answer to that is no. Okay. So we're, but there's some exposure there. I'm I guess sure. you have to
0: trust them to a certain extent. Yeah. But,
1: um, now that's not to say absolutely completely. Um, you know, we we have we have this is a very diverse company, by the way. There are I could almost find if I need a language speaker, I can run up and down the hall, and, and you'd be amazed at how many different ones I can get: Korean, j- Japanese. Um, Italian, Chinese, um, three people here from India, um, German, French. So, I I, know. It's
0: It's always great to have them here. It's great to have them here. Um,
1: But, but for example, we didn't really have anybody to prove the Korean uh, documentation that was done. I mean, there wasn't anybody here at the time to read it. There's somebody here now.
0: And I guess culturally, you know, working in a lab is pretty much the same wherever you go throughout the world. You know, you take more tea time in India than yeah. Poland and so on. I mean, any other cultural differences like that that impact your business?
1: Football versus football.
0: Ah. Okay, okay. those are important
1: things. Um, uh, no, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're still driven by the, the people that love technology and that are involved in technology. And, and we are, again, dealing with people that are at uh, fairly high levels of education. So, you know, most of our customers can communicate with us somewhat in English because they, even if they're from India, they've done a postdoc in London or they, you know, so. Okay. Yeah.
0: And I guess lastly, is there anything else that's important for listeners and readers to know either about Nanolink generally or more specifically about what Nanoleaf is doing internationally?
1: Well, let me give you the general first because I think to date there are not very many really good examples of successful nanotechnology companies. There's a lot of companies that have nano in their name and that are associated with nano and that have raised a lot of money or, you know, but, but a broad-based company that's involved across the whole planet and across many different the aspects of nanotechnology, I don't know that anyone's risen to that, and I am certainly hoping that Nanolink can, can accept that mantle. We're, we actually have an internal directive to rise to that challenge, to try and be that company. So uh, I'm excited to be involved with a company that's, just, that's that focused on trying to move uh, in, into a role like that. Um, internationally, um, again, I, I think that uh, the nanotechnology offers so many potential answers to problems that the world has. Uh, that, that, and not to sound too overly holistic and holy, um, you know, and I, I do hope that we we can provide some answers to some of the problems that we have because. A lot of this green technology is enabled by nano. A lot of clean water can be enabled by nano. Energy can be enabled by nano. Health care can be enabled by nano. Do you have
0: specific examples there, or does DPN apply
1: here? Well, I'm using nano in a more general sense there, because, you know, DPN isn't the answer to every one of those world problems. But DPN can enable nanomanufacturing. If we, could, we can use our equipment to train. One of the other things that's, that's missing, and we really just realized this in the last few years, um, there are currently in the United States somewhere around 20 to 30,000 nanotechnologists, people that are trained to work at this size range. They are almost exclusively people that went through research one-level institutions and have advanced degrees.
0: If we are going to have a
1: nanotechnology-based manufacturing sector in this country, in the world, but in the country, we need, according to the NSF, two million workers by 2015. And nobody's training those guys, and the universities can't train them quickly enough. We've seen uh, over the last less than a year now, we've seen a movement to invest in the training of technology workers for just a year or two away, you know, five years away, um, and and Nano Inc has in fact got a product called the Nano Professor, which is a combined uh, equipment, some of which we make, some of which we buy, the uh, curriculum, the supplies, the training of the teachers, and we are working pretty heavily right now to try and begin to scale geometrically, anyway, uh, the ability to begin training a workforce and. That, that's something that's, that's brand new. That was, a year ago, if you asked me if NanoLink would be in the business of selling education, I would have said, why? But as we grew, I experienced the problem first half. I hired five people last year, all of which have PhDs, and they are sales and service people. But, you know, Fundamentally, they don't need those degrees to do their jobs, but those are the people that are trained. So um, there's a whole new business growing up here now on how to create, a, a program that will allow small colleges, junior colleges, technical vocational colleges, to use equipment, some of which we make, um, to train people on how to become proficient at manufacturing in the space. And um, if we do a good job of this, it helps keep an industry in this country that otherwise will go somewhere else, just like most
0: other manufacturing
1: industries have gone somewhere else,
0: well, and just looking at the competitive landscape, I mean, one of America's competitive disadvantages these days, supposedly, is that we are graduating thousands or tens of thousands of engineers each year. China and India are graduating hundreds, yeah, hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands, right. And so, any idea where China and India are in terms of training nanotechnology?
1: Um. I don't think they're any further along than we are. Unfortunately, they just have so many more to begin with
0: well, we that,
1: that if I said we had 20,000 in this country, they would probably have more than 20,000 just because of the sheer numbers. And the other thing that we've done a very poor job in this country of is training uh, uh, students from other countries and then giving them advanced degrees and then packing them home to their own country again because we won't allow them to work here. I think that's been a... You know, that's a bit of a travesty and you know I'm all for having americans take american jobs but you know on the other hand somebody needs to fill these jobs and there's a real need for trained technologists to keep advancing our our science and we're we're we're, we're promoting other countries uh, advancement of that by training all the people in the first class institutions and then sending them back and i have to tell you i've been to some of the first class institutions in india you know, if you go to uh, I- IIT in Delhi, that's equivalent to an MIT in this country, and um, I didn't find it to be anywhere near the quality of the education that someone would get here. So I strongly suspect uh, that we are doing a very good job of training the individuals who are going back and improving the educational system of the other countries, who will then make them even more competitive with us in the future. So.
0: Anything else?
1: No, thank you for the opportunity to uh, expose about our technology.
0: Thank you very much for your time. (laughs) Much appreciated.